There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you'll only look Then you will see On WCN-TV Hi, friends. Thank you so much for joining us here on WCN-TV today. Pastor Mike, I've got a wonderful, wonderful brother in the Lord, and we're going to discuss his book, Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life. <laughs> I know so many people that are looking for that today. And, of course, you know, because you're a regular viewer of wcn TV, that the good life does not consist of things nor how the world defines it. Good life is found in the scriptures and what it has to say to us on any number of subjects. Secularists believe the Bible is irrelevant to life in the 21st century, filled with fables, rules, violence, and patriarchal systems. Boy, and isn't that the truth? I, I have found that in, in much of my reading. Uh, Dr. Ralph, I'm teaching through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings right now. And uh when, when you read broadly, and, and by the way, I'll just say this and get it out of the way. I appreciated your bibliography. That's usually the one of the first things I check in a <laughs> book is to see where are you being fed? Where are you getting your information? And, and where's your perspective coming from? And and uh, I remarked to Kathy, well, that was a pretty robust bibliography. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to this conversation. Um, but my point is, a lot of people believe that the book of Revelation is myth, that it's just fable, that it is uh, allegory, that it is just uh, the eternal uh, story of the struggle between good and evil. And I would object to that characterization and, and consider it something wholly different. But anyway, as, as society devolves into me-centeredness, narcissism, broken commitments, fraud and sensuality, Dr. Ralph says that the roadmap for living a good life is right in front of us. And so in his book, Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life, Ralph, who, by the way, is a professor of religion and, and director of the program on or in religion at, is it Averitt? Averitt, you've Averitt, got it right. <laughs> Averitt University um, in Virginia says that the wisdom literature from the Bible covers every subject that you can consider. And let me just give you a few of those. Integrity, community, consequences, communication, sex and marriage, health, work, wealth, time, even death. The wisdom literature found in the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon is for many believers an untapped source of living the good life. So I want to welcome Dr. Ralph to the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm, thank you so much, Mike. It's great to be with you tonight. Well, you're very welcome. We're pleased that you could. Um, producer has the, the book up there, Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life. Um, I know so many people right now that they're in in a a season of life where they are they are searching desperately to find uh, sometimes I call it that that sweet spot where where they're walking with the Lenon. Doesn't mean now let me qualify that. Uh, 
some people get the notion that oh they're they're living in that sweet spot or, or that you know everything is rosy and everything is going right and that's not what i mean at all that sweet spot is when you're walking with the lord and you're su- and you're in such constant communion with the lord that whatever comes your way you are able to deal with it because you're walking closely with the lord and that's what uh, this book is going to to bring to you readers so i would encourage you there it is it's available through hendricks and publishers thank you producers for putting that out um so you start out by saying ralph that anyone can grasp god's wisdom anyone can grasp god's wisdom and that's one of the beautiful things uh about our heavenly father he doesn't hide himself from anybody does he i think you're so right yeah the um you know, when you think about what we have in the biblical wisdom literature, the five books that you mentioned, it's it's really so unique. Um, the subject of the good life has been something that people have been seeking, you know, for centuries, for millennia. And if you go all the way back to the uh, what's called the classical period, the period of the Greek philosophers, um, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, people like that, the good life is one of the big subjects in their writings, <clears throat> and uh, they're always talking about it. What is the good life? How do we find it? But they believed that it was out of reach for the common man. Um, they believed that it could only be attained by an elite class of philosophers. So that, that meant that most people would never experience the good life in their entire lifetime. But the Bible is so different. Ancient Israel's wise men, the sages, they taught that wisdom was for everybody and that anybody could attain the good life because anybody could answer the call of wisdom. Uh, There's a beautiful passage in Proverbs 8 where wisdom is portrayed as a woman and and, um, people call her lady wisdom. It's just a personification of wisdom. But she stands at the crossroads of the city and she calls out to everybody who's walking by and she says, to you, O people, I call and my cry is to everyone who lives. Come into me and learn prudence and, and, and acquire intelligence, all you who lack it. So there's this idea that anybody can uh, learn the biblical wisdom. It's accessible for everyone and anyone who wants to, can attain the good life through it. Amen. And so how would you define or or, or describe wisdom? Ralph, we probably should do that for our our viewers. Yeah. Well, when you go back again to the, like the classical world and and look at philosophy, um, wisdom is very abstract and, uh, but it's, it's not that way in ancient Israel. Um, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah, and it, it it's not abstract knowledge. It is essentially skill for living. Um, biblical wisdom is about the ways of things, um, how they're meant to exist, how they're meant to function properly, and um, Biblical wisdom deals with all kinds of things. It covers everything from sowing to farming <laughs> to building things to communicating and so on. So, um, you know, some some of it uh, might be focused on some little small thing like sowing, but it's just, it's comprehensive. It just deals with everything in life. And uh, as you already mentioned, there are five books that present this wisdom, uh, the books of Job, Proverbs, Song of Songs. Um, Some Old Testament scholars would not include Song of Songs in the wisdom literature, but I think it belongs there. Um, Ecclesiastes, uh, those are the five books. But they're not just designed to teach us how to do things more effectively. At the heart of it is they're designed to teach us how to find the meaning of those things in the whole of God's created order. So yes, how to live more effectively, but how to understand the things we do 
in, in terms of how they fit into the larger picture of God's created order. Um, in, in other words, uh, yes, how to live effectively, but how to do the things we do in a way that's in harmony for God's design for the world, I guess is how I would say it. Yes, yes, amen. And and I think that our viewers have have that light bulb went on and said, oh, so this actually applies to all of life, to everyone's life, regardless of their their vocation, um, what it is that they um, do for a living, um, their station, their economic status. This applies to everybody and, and whatever it is they're doing in their life, they're doing it as unto the Lord. And so they would see it in a much broader picture and so those those skills that they that they learn there is wisdom in that that they can pass on to to their protege to their to their sons or their daughters i i I like that description and that that definition so we've lost today and this was one of the first things that i i looked at in the book and said amen as i was reading through it we've lost today as a um, as a society, and I'll just focus on America, um, we've lost the fear of the Lord. Now, this is, um, it should not be controversial in my opinion, but it seems that it is when you when you begin to speak to people about the fear of the Lord and, and, and the loss of that in our, in our culture. But it really is a key aspect to understanding why we're where we are as a culture that that whole so talk to us dr ralph about the fear of the lord the importance of recognizing who who the lord is and how that should impact our lives on a on a daily basis yeah that's such a great topic um yeah and and in in the book the, the first chapter of the book kind of introduces the wisdom literature but the the very second chapter uh as soon as i talk about what the wisdom books are, I I begin talking about the fear of the Lord because it's the foundation for everything, um, everything that follows. Um, Now, there's kind of been a negative perception of the idea of the fear of the Lord. We live in a culture, like you said, where the idea of fearing God, that's something you don't hear very much. Um, I come out of the mainline denominational world. Um, I'm, I'm an Anglican priest, uh, but in the so-called mainline world, like United Methodist, um, Lutheran, Episcopal, you don't hear much about the fear of the Lord. That's right. <laughs> um, I mean, it's kind of thought of as an old-fashioned and outdated concept, and um, it, it's viewed as a negative thing. <laughs> um you know, and I can understand the discomfort with it in a way, because you think of that word fear, you know, in our culture, fear is usually connected with the basic human instinct, you know, to run away or to defend yourself or to retaliate against an attacker or something like that. Um So we have this Hebrew word that has traditionally been translated fear, um, fear of the Lord. And fear is a good translation. I mean, it's accurate, um, but it has those negative connotations people think tend to think of in our society. And I don't think those negative connotations capture the sense of what ancient Israel's sages were trying to convey. Um, it, you can skim modern translations and you'll see that <clears throat> different modern translations of trying to come up with other ways to translate this word that that is rendered fear. Uh, for example, the New Century Version translates it respect, uh, so respect of the, for the Lord. The Good News Translation translates it reverence. Um, in the book, I give some other examples, but um, I, I propose translating it as reverential awe reverential awe. Now, it's probably not perfect. I don't, I don't know. <clears throat> but um, what I'm trying to do is express the idea that this fear of the Lord is something positive. It's a positive way of perceiving the Lord. Uh, we have tremendous reverence and awe simultaneously for the Lord. And ancient Israel sages taught 
that this fear of the Lord or this reverence for the Lord, however we want to translate it, but they taught that that's the very beginning of wisdom, the uh, beginning in the sense of the starting point for doing wisdom, also the beginning in the sense of the foundation. I mean, it's it's the beginning point and the foundation for wisdom. So that, um, um, that comes very early in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. If we have reverential awe for the Lord, we will want to embrace wisdom. We will want to live according to its ways. And that idea is baked into the wisdom literature as a whole. If you think of a cake, I mean, it's like it's scattered throughout. It's just baked in. Um, again, it starts at the beginning, Proverbs 1, 7. It says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It occurs um, in the middle of the book of Proverbs, and it occurs at the end of the book of Proverbs. Um, and then it occurs 13 times scattered through the book. And it also appears in Job, chapter 28, verse 28. It occurs in Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 13, and in several of the wisdom Psalms. So it's just an extremely prominent um, theme that's baked into the wisdom literature. And, and it's... Um, the starting point. Um, I don't know if I've answered your question or not. Yes, 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 you sure did, Ralph and I. So one of the things that that stood out to me in this chapter um, is is what you wrote on the very last page. It's page 61. Um, In this chapter, we've seen that the fear of the Lord is viewed in wisdom literature as a positive sensibility rather than a negative one. And that's that's a point that you made. Resistance to the idea that God should be feared in any sense is a result of the influence of modernity. And it's yes. that is so spot on. That is exactly right. We have different ways of expressing ourselves. And, and that has happened um, because words like sin aren't really used anymore. Now it's just, yeah. well, yeah. I made a mistake or, yeah, you know, it was. Yeah. <laughs> or it's it's often um, every, everything in our culture is medicalized. So yeah, yes. if you do something wrong, it, it's a sickness. You're not to blame. It's yes. a sickness of some kind. Well, the reality is, sin is a sickness. <laughs> you know, from from the scriptural perspective, sin. Paul would say we're infected. You know, everyone is infected with this disease of sin. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> I think that, that contributed to to. Yeah, loss of reverential awe. Um, the fear of the Lord, friends, it should inspire us and motivate us to what I call uh, loving loyalty, loving loyalty to the Lord. Now, some people say uh, obedience. Um, same idea, loving loyalty to the Lord. If if we if we fear Him in the proper sense. And we want to be conscious of the things that we're thinking of doing or have done. And we want to make sure that our lives are aligned with what brings honor and glory to the Lord. And that's, I think that's one way that people can wrap their minds around this idea. So there's a, there's a big difference there. And uh, this this erosion, we've kind of hit on it already. This erosion of the fear of the Lord in our culture is due to a lot of a lot of different influences, uh, modernity, yeah. postmodernism. I mean, we could get existentialism <laughs> on the right. Even even I, I, I'm seeing strands of of uh, the old Gnosticism back in 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 play today with 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 people trying to to um, to gain freedom of self-expression and because they're alienated. And so they, they want to gain freedom and they're, they're doing that. They think through self-identification and all forms of other things. And uh, I don't know that we want to go down that trail too much, Dr. Ralph, but um, you include a chapter on integrity. And I, and I really like that. Um, Integrity is, um, well, it's central to the biblical message. It's central to the man or woman of God that we are to have, be people of integrity. But that's something that today has been lost, in my opinion. What, 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 did, what do you think? 
I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, you, yeah, you, you think about um, um, the, the loss of integrity. Uh, you know, you think of the rise in crime and, um, uh, gosh, these last few years, if you've watched the news after, after um, uh, the, the George Floyd incident, you had all the rioting, rioting and looting of cities, you know, and, and uh, breaking the stores and j just um, the uh, spread of, of uh, wanton violence and crime. Um, it, it's frightening that these people doing these things don't have within them enough integrity uh, that it would prevent those that kind of behavior. Um, I, I think recovering integrity, you know, I, I think when you really shuck it down to the cob, as we would say in Alabama, <laughs> yes, that's right. you really shuck it down to the cob, <clears throat> recovering integrity, I think, starts if we have to actually go back to that previous chapter on fear of the Lord. Uh, I think recovering integrity starts with renewing our belief that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And then when we look at how ancient Israel sages talked about the fear of the Lord, what we'll see is very interesting. They believe that there was a close relationship between the fear of the Lord and love and reverence for God's law or his Torah. Yes. Um, for example, in one of the wisdom Psalms, <clears throat> the psalmist invites children to come to him. He says, I'm going to teach you the fear of the Lord. And he does that, and then he proceeds to teach them about the importance of Torah. <laughs> so they're inextricably intertwined. If if people don't have a, a reverential awe for God, I mean, if they don't know who God is and deeply, um, you know, uh, um, in awe of Him, they're not going to care about His law. So, so I think the first thing to restoring integrity is is recapturing a sense of who God is and, and what He means to us, and um, and only then, through recapturing uh, uh, the fear of the Lord, can we then, um, you know, promote the law or promote the Torah, promote God's ways, and uh, only then will people accept it. Um, I, I think also the Book of Ecclesiastes. You know, you read that book. <laughs> and it's such a wonderful book because the author is on a search for the good life and he tries everything. You know, he just, he tries uh, engaging in construction projects and going to war and vanquishing his enemies. And he tries sex and uh, multiple partners, you know, he just tries everything and he, it, it all comes up. His quest comes up empty. And then you get to the end of the book and he says, you know what I've, really realized in my life is that the whole duty of man, the whole duty of humankind is to fear God and to keep his commandments. <laughs> so <laughs> he rediscovers this reverential awe for God. And that's what uh, leads him to appreciate the Torah, you know. Amen. Amen. And I, I, I want to say too, that I enjoy and appreciate the, the layout. I'm just going to show this. Uh, if folks can see it. So there are chapters here, friends, on integrity that we were just talking about. We're going to talk about community as well, but chapters on uh, cause and effect, communication, sex and marriage, health, work, wealth and poverty, time, death. Um, what Dr. Ralph has done is he, he has examined all of the wisdom literature and and he has he has shown you where wisdom is to be found in all of these. And th this is an all encompassing book. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to passing this on to other people. But I really liked uh, what you did in the chapter on community because you you started with a with a story uh, from a from a novel at home in Mitford. And I have to tell you, after I read that, I was thinking, man, that was how it was when I grew up. <laughs> <It was> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I grew up in a small town, just like that. Everybody knew everybody. Yeah. It's like, you didn't, you didn't try to push it too much when you're a kid, because you mm -hmm. knew that, uh, <laughs> 
your friend on the other side of town, his dad would tell your dad because they probably work together. And it's, you know, so it's, uh, I smiled when I was reading that. Um, but community, the, the idea of community, um, I want to say in some places it's been, it's been rebirthed. It's, it's, it's receiving the, the focus and attention that it should have always, especially in the church. But there's still, I think, a, a big gap in where we need to be. So talk to us about community. Why is it important, especially among the body of Christ? Yeah. Uh, community is something that's always been a, um, a, a, a beloved subject to me. I, um, yeah, when I was in, um, I, well, I'm just going to sk skip all that. It, it's a subject that's always been deeply important to me um, for various reasons, but maybe I'll come back to that in just a minute. Yeah, there's there's been a decline in community in this country for sure. Um, there's a Harvard sociologist named Robert Putnam. He wrote what is now viewed as a classic, a, a book called Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. He wrote that in 2000. And since the publication of that book, he's published a series of other books kind of building on it. But what he does in that book is he shows how about how since about 1980, there's been um, uh, something that's happened among Americans. They've become increasingly disconnected from their families, from their friends, their neighbors and their community structures, whether it's parent teacher organizations or the local congregations recreation clubs, service clubs, political parties, bowling leagues, whatever. People have just become less involved on that civic level. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that decline. Uh, and he, of course, he explores all those. One of the big reasons, of course, was the the shift from an agricultural society to an industrial society where a whole generation moved from the country to the city and that had a huge impact, of course. And then you've got the continued commercialization of our society, which and what happens today is that people go where the job is. So they leave the town they grew up in. They leave their home. They leave their friends and family. And um, we end up living in suburbs where nobody knows anyone. <laughs> um, they don't even bother to build sidewalks in these communities because everybody leaves the community to go to work and, and their lives really are outside those communities. Uh, we don't even build front porches in those communities. Uh, we build them out back so that we, and we put up a privacy fence around it. So really we've become a nation of people who live in isolation. Um, and this has led to an epidemic of loneliness today. Yeah. Uh, there's a recent book by a, behavioral scientist Susan Metz, and she talks about the profound physical, emotional, and social effects of loneliness. And she argues that loneliness has increased to pandemic proportions. Um, the former prime minister of England, Boris Johnson, he was appointed minister of loneliness. <laughs> and in the United States, the Surgeon General, um, very recently has declared that loneliness is an epidemic in the United States. So it's not just something pastors are saying. This is something sociologists and statesmen and doctors are talking about the problems of um, um, the decline of community and, and loneliness. And of course, the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about this. You know, the very first book of the Bible teaches that it is not good for man to be alone. Uh, Genesis 2.18. And that's so true. Being disconnected from others, it literally diminishes our happiness, our health. It reduces our longevity. It increases aggression. And it's connected with increasing rates of violent crime. Uh, communities that don't have strong social bonds, they have lower educational performance, more teen pregnancy, uh, more child suicide, low birth weight, um, um, even prenatal mortality, just all kinds of problems. People are created to live together. Again, Genesis uh, 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, people are made to be together. They're made to live in relationships and in community. 
and ancient Israel sages, boy, they have a lot to say about what makes up a healthy society. At the foundation is the family, and then the sages teach a lot about neighbors, the relationships people should have with their neighbors and how important those are. Living in a community means knowing your neighbors, and that's communal life, you know, being with your neighbors. And then the importance of friendships. Those are another key part of the community. Um, but yeah, the, the, so it's just such a huge topic and, um, um, and, and the wisdom literature has an awful lot to say about it. Yeah, for sure. We're going to uh, take a break now and, and play a, a promotional video from the upcoming Wisconsin Christian News Conference, uh, April, the, the middle of the month in April, we'll think 12th and 13th, Jonathan, that'll be on here. Um, and as we lead into that, we'll come back. I've got one comment. Yeah, April 12th and 13th. So let's go ahead and play that. Inflation continues to come down. And this revolution will come at a breathtaking speed. It will be like a tsunami. Respect for our laws has been eroded by aggressors who come in battalions to hold us hostage in our own land. Uh, Islamic terrorists have acted just like wild animals uh, going after their prey. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We have to commit that the Bible is the only answer for humanity. The ecclesia, the called out ones, we have got to grow a backbone. The highest sex traffic event in the nation is the Super Bowl. We're in the most intense war in the history of humanity. It's happening right now. The Wisconsin Christian News Ministry Conference, April 12th and 13th. Come worship with MPK Christian Celtic Band national recording artist Leighton Howerton so let our heaven and nature sing let our heaven and nature sing the conference will be held at the Stony Creek Hotel and Conference Center 1100 Imperial Avenue Rothschild, Wisconsin purchase your tickets today at coachdavelive.com slash events that's coachdavelive.com slash events events. You can also call 715-486-8066 for more information. See you at the conference. God bless you. Thank you very much. So you can go to the Wisconsin Christian News website and register for that conference. Uh, also, Coach Dave Alive, uh, register there, twelfth and thirteenth. Thanks for thanks for playing that. So I think it's clear to all those that have joined us today, Dr. Ralph, that community is very very important, and we have to make, in in my view, a conscious effort to resist those influences that would isolate us. So I just want to mention one thing I read and I thought, wow, that's really high, troubling. Um, in that chapter, uh, you gave a couple of authors of a book who who researched this, this statistic and said that 25% of um, Americans, 25% of households in the United States consists of only one person. Yeah. Yeah. That was shocking to me because yeah. that's a lot of households. <laughs> I know Wow, it, it is. It's, it's troubling, you know, and of course I, 
you know, pe- people, I don't think, you know, they don't do this consciously, I don't think, choosing isolation, but it's just the confluence of all these trends we've been talking about working together that creates a society that, that functions this way. But yeah, 25% of all households consist of a single individual. I mean, there, there are a lot of people living in isolation and loneliness. Um, there, there is uh, one of the pro- proverbs I, I think I cited in that part of the book, but I can't remember the chapter and verse of it offhand at the moment, but it, it says essentially that um, uh, in Israelite society, the person who lives alone is the person who um, defies wisdom or decide, defies the societal norms of ancient Israel. I, I, that's not the exact wording, but it's, it's saying the person who lives alone is uh, they're going against the ancient Israelite way because the ancient Israelite way was familial. It was communal, you know, not individual. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I just um, saw one of the subheadings in that chapter. Um, Community um, results in good social order. That's, that's, That's a very, very good point. So, you include a chapter also on cause and effect, and um, I love the story that you started with. I've actually told that one myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. Usually results in a lot of laughter about <laughs> the bricklayer, <laughs> but but there is there is a very direct uh, hard line between cause and effect and and what what you're talking about here in this chapter. Please please share some of that. Yeah, I, I struggled with what to title that chapter, and um, I kept changing it. I, I thought about titling it Responsibility, uh, and I eventually went with Cause and Effect. But, I'm, I mean, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, what, what I was, that, what, What's really at the heart of that chapter is, is um, the idea that um, we, that, that we, modern people, um, are responsible or we can be responsible. We have the ability to respond. Um, and if you think about that word responsibility, you, you see that it's got two words in it, response and ability. So really responsibility has to do with the idea that we have the ability to be, that we have the ability to respond. We have the um, capability of responding. And in some cases we have the obligation to respond. And I think that's really important because when you look at modern day society, um, we have have lost that. Um, many people today think that somebody else is responsible for them, and um, um, you know that it's up to others to um, um, you know to to um, help them in their lives or to guide them or take care of them or whatever. Uh, over the last few decades, there, there have been several social observers who have argued that there's been a decline in our sense of personal and social responsibility. Uh, back in the early 90s, um, Charles Sykes wrote a book called um, A Nation of Victims. Uh, and the subtitle of that book was The Decay of American Character. And then in 2022, just a few years ago, uh, you might remember presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, like all politicians do, he published a campaign book, and his campaign book picked up on the title from Charles Sykes' 1992 book. Ramaswamy's book was called Nation of Victims. But both of those books make the argument that our nation is suffering a crisis of responsibility, that Americans are looking to others, um, such as the government, for example, to take responsibility for our lives. You know, if you th- you think about um, people who come to this country, what are they looking for? Um, they're in many cases, at least, um, um, you know, back in the old days, they were coming here looking for the American dream, for an opportunity. And in 1892, an immigrant processing station was opened on Ellis Island in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. And the shadow Statue of Liberty, of course, was a symbol of hope to generations of immigrants. They could come here and have opportunity. Um, 
or they could be free from oppression maybe that they had had in their home country. Um, one of my favorite writers is a guy named Dennis Waitley, and he wrote a book in 1998 called Empires of the Mind. And in that book, he suggests that there ought to be a statue of responsibility right next to the Statue of Liberty <laughs> so, that, so that when people come to this country, they will be reminded that with liberty comes responsibility. And liberty can only last when people have a sense of responsibility. If people lose their sense of responsibility, they can't hold on to their freedoms. Somebody else will have to take over, right? And um, But ancient Israel sages knew this and they understood this, that they believed that God's people were responsible for their own effects. Uh, and you could call this the principle of cause and effect. You could call it sowing and reaping. Um, you know, it's, it's basically the idea that our lives are shaped by our choices. And um, the ancient Israelites believed this. They believed that positive choices and positive behavior led to positive outcomes, while negative behavior, negative choices would lead to negative outcomes. And they understood this cause and effect as um, really as like a law of God on which the world operated. They believed that God's people had choices, and those choices, good or bad, dictated the responses. They People would cause their own effects. That's cause and effect. Um, one of the most common metaphors in Scripture for this idea is sowing and reaping. And, of course, ancient Israel was an agricultural society, and so um, sowing and reaping obviously was very familiar to people. Uh, but everyone knew that what you sowed, that was what you would reap. You know, if you planted apple seeds, you wouldn't get corn, you'd get apples. <laughs> and, and so this made a perfect metaphor for the principle of cause and effect. You know, you live this way, you behave in these ways, you reap these uh, things. So so just all about responsibility, and, and we have responsibility. We should take responsibility. Um but that, that's the basic idea. Uh, of course, it, it's a rich topic that is um, taught in all kinds of ways in the wisdom literature. <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. Uh, chapter six in your book deals with um, communication. And I don't think this is an understatement, but we have and are still currently in a crisis of communication, it seems as if um, we are speaking several different languages within our nation today. The meaning, the definition of words has been changed. Mm. Um, we are, we are, we are in crisis mode. It seems like, and unfortunately, um, much of the church, in my opinion, is trying to play catch up. And it's as if they're they're not. If we would apply ourselves to understanding what underlie what the foundation is of the new methods of communication and the new words and the meanings of those words, what they're actually saying, I think the church could actually have a huge evangelistic impact into the culture today. Um, but you talk about communication, you talk about the collapse of communication, and I couldn't agree more, but that doesn't mean that we should give up. We need to really press in. Yeah, yeah, you're right. R really, this chapter, well, in some ways, I mean, it kind of builds off the chapter on community um, and loneliness. Our poor communication is... Um, one of the symptoms of the loneliness, or maybe it's it's not a byproduct, but certainly contributes to it. Yeah, human, human communication is not easy. Um, I'm an introvert by nature. I, I'm not an extrovert. <clears throat> um, one of my kids, I can't remember which one of the children it was. We've got four, but one of them <clears throat> said, um, it told me that just a year or two ago, they said, well, you, you, uh, you must love being on the stage and, and being in front of people. You must love, um, you know, really love uh, talking to people and be extroverted. Otherwise you wouldn't have gone into ministry. 
<laughs> which is very ironic. No, I'm an introvert. Um, but yeah, human communication is not easy, especially for introverts. And it's been estimated um, uh, that about 51% of the American population is made up of introverts. Um, for the other you know, the remaining people, well, really for everybody, technology has not helped. It's probably hurt us in our communication. Yes. Um, it's become almost second nature, you know, to, to all of us to use instant messaging and email and mm-hmm. social media as handy escape hatches from having to interact with people. And um, social scientists have shown that the more times people spend with technology, the less adept they become at in-person communication. So it just feeds itself. We become uh, less and less skilled at um, uh, communicating. Uh, there's a real, uh, an interesting book um, by another sociologist named Daniel Goldman. He's the guy who wrote that famous book on emotional intelligence. But um, in studying communication, one of his projects he wrote about um, how important face-to-face communication is for a baby's brain development. And it's so fascinating. Um, What happens is as a baby communicates and watches the face of the person he or she is interacting with, it actually causes their brain to develop. And then as they grow and mature, it continues to play a vital role in social and emotional development as they grow up. So communication literally causes their brain to grow and develop. When we introduce technology to babies and, um, you know, just use technology as a babysitter and so on, when babies spend all their time with technology, they learn how to be in a relationship with technology. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's another writer, Sherry Turkle, all these people in communication. She's really famous, uh, has written several books on communication. And she, in her studies, has has she has argued from her own observation uh, that students don't seem to make friends as easily as before today. Um, she says it's difficult to get them to address one another directly in class. And she says they tend to look... Um, they tend to sit during the lunch hour at school and just look at their phones more often than not. Um, So, you know, if we're going to learn to grow, I mean, if we're going to grow and learn to empathize with other people and be able to really understand and engage with people around us, we got to learn to communicate. And of course you said a minute ago, if we're going to evangelize people, you know, we've got to be willing to communicate with them and, um, so I, I think as Americans in, in 2024, we've got a lot of, of relearning to do. I, um, and it's interesting, you, the book of Proverbs, um, you know, a lot of commentaries on the book of Proverbs, they'll have an index at the back, or uh, which will you can look up topics and see where they appear in Proverbs. And communication has if you look at one of those indexes, communication it will have more entries, I think, than any other topic. I mean, it's it's just so important. Why is it so important? Because um, it's how we live and interact with people every day by by talking. So um, so there are lots of examples in the proverbs of um, positive speech. There's there are lots of um, examples of negative speech and. Um, I, I love the subject, these kinds of proverbs, because they're so simple and easy to understand. Yes. But they're but so powerful. Uh, like here, here's an example of positive speech uh, from Proverbs twelve eighteen. It says, "Reckless words pierce like a sword, but it, um, but the tongue of the wise brings healing." <clears throat> you know, I mean, it's just a few words there, but reckless words wreak incredible havoc, whereas the tongue of the wise can um, facilitate all kinds of healing, you know, healing in relationships, um, maybe healing in people's health, you know, making them feel better and literally improving their health. Um, Proverbs 15.4 is kind of interesting because it compares the words of our mouths to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. 
It mm-hmm. says the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. So I mean, what we say, um, you know, what the writer is saying is there's a sense in which we can literally, not literally, but we can almost like recreate um, Edenic conditions in this fallen world yes. by, by the way we communicate with other people. Yes. Um, so I, I just, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that is beautiful, Ralph. Well, uh, chapter seven, I don't know that we're going to get past this. We might, um, but I have to admit when I, when I looked at chapter seven, sex and marriage, and uh, I considered that within the context of the book, Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life. There are a good many people out there that wouldn't equate marriage with the good life. And I'm, I'm <laughs> that's, that's, that's a little bit of levity, I admit. However, yeah. there, 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 there are many folks that feel yeah. that way about marriage. And that is a very, very sad condition mm-hmm. in our nation today, Ralph. Yeah, yeah, you're so right. And um, <clears throat> the, this subject <clears throat> of marriage <clears throat> is so profoundly important that, um, you know, in, in the chapter, that that, that chapter, um, I mean, it just scratches the surface. There's so much m- more um, to, to, that, that could be said on a subject, obviously. Um, but it's, it's so important. And I think you know, there's a, a hesitancy today, you know, like we talked about a minute ago, 25% of all households are occupied by single individuals or, or a single person. Um, young people are not uh, forming families today. They're, they're marrying later <clears throat> and many are not marrying at all. So I, I think in our culture, there's been a devaluation of the family, which, which is, is very sad. People, have forgotten how profoundly important the family is. But when you look at the wisdom literature, the family holds the pivotal role in society. I mean, it was viewed as so foundationally important that it actually appears in three of the 10 commandments, commandment four, commandment five, and commandment seven. Um, And in fact, after the fifth commandment is given, that's the command that says, honor your father and mother. Um, the text adds a, a line about what the result of that kind of behavior will be. And it says, you will live long in the land. That, that is, as a nation. These are commands given to the Israelite people who are becoming a nation through the making of the covenant. So what it's essentially saying is that if you build strong families, you'll live long in the land as a people. You know, you'll create a stable, strong society that will have incredible uh, longevity. Uh, So strong families provide the foundation of healthy communities and they produce a stable society. It's so tragic that in our country, the rate of decline of first marriage and ever marriage, it's been on the decline since 1960. And this people, uh, you know, I think they might say, well, it's not that big a deal, but the decline of the family holds negative consequences literally for every citizen, for every citizen, whether they realize it or not. The decline of the family means that children are not being raised in an intact family. It means that fatherless children um, it means that many children are fatherless and they're going to be, they're going to have all kinds of problems, academic problems, a propensity to violence and crime. Um, uh, the decline of the family means um, poverty because broken families produce poverty. Uh, it means fewer children are being born, which is leading to a population contraction. That has all kinds of um, societal implications. There's yeah. a book that was published a few years ago with the title, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, (laughs) Um, playing on the old uh, maternity book, What to Expect When You're Expecting, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. Well, we can expect an unstable social security system, you know, and all kinds of other social consequences. Um, uh, People are living alone, which contributes to the epidemic of loneliness, just on and on. 
without strong families, we literally can't have a strong society. So um, marriage is just so key. And um, um, there's a writer that just put out a book literally in the last few weeks, um, uh, and it's called something like Get Married or something like that. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the exact title, yeah. but it's a book about the joys of marriage and the importance of marriage and the value of marriage. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if it's a Christian book or a secular book. I just remember seeing the title, the cover kind of cross my computer screen at yeah. some point. Yeah. But, um, you know, marriage is I, I'm, I was raised in a conservative uh, evangelical home and uh, I got married at like the age of 22 or something like that. My wife was 18 and uh, we've been married 33 years. And, um, you know, pe- people look at us like we're from Mars or something. They, they don't meet anybody today who's been married that long. <laughs> you know, that is so very true. Yeah. yeah. So, so, uh, so very true. Well, we, we've got time, Dr. Ralph, for one one last question. The next chapter is on health. And, and I think this, this was a good sequence, a, a good, good way to put them because um, marriage and family life, uh, that, that strong uh, community within the family that's, that's modeled for other, other uh, families and our neighbors, that contributes. And, and this is not just wishful thinking, but there, there is statistical proof that that continues, that contributes rather to good health. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And ancient Israel sages certainly believe that in Proverbs four, um, for example, the sage invites his readers. He says, hear and accept my words so that the years of your life may be many, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. That's Proverbs 4.10 uh, and also verse 22. Yeah, the, the lifestyle enshrined in the wisdom literature is a lifestyle that literally produces stability, health, longevity. Uh, some people will chafe at that and say, well, how can you say such a thing? But it's really true. There are a lot of reasons why religious activity and church going would be healthy. <laughs> I mean, it's just common sense, really. Religious groups tend to steer their people away from unhealthy behaviors and destructive behaviors. And instead, they encourage them to engage in health affirming activities like fellowship, which brings emotional and psychological health, uh, socializing, prayer, volunteering. You know, engaging in family rituals, which reinforce strong families, listening to positive and healing music. Uh, Prayer particularly is therapeutic, both for those who pray, but also for those who uh, other people are praying on their behalf. And it's really interesting. Somebody published a study a few years ago that was just really um, uh, kind of mystifying. um, But it it, it was studying the effects of prayer, uh, physicians studying the effects of prayer. And they studied people who were the subjects of prayer. So other people were praying for them. And whether the subject knew that others were praying for them or whether they did not know, in both cases, they showed um, uh, health benefits that came about as a result. So very interesting. But there have been a lot of studies that show that um, specific religious um beliefs and practices have specific health advantages like church attendance is associated with decreased heart disease. Uh, Church attendance is associated with lower blood pressure uh, reductions and cases of uh, emphysema, cirrhosis of the liver, uh, suicide, all those kinds of things. So yeah, yeah. Religious practices, um, walking the ways of wisdom has health benefits. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, we are we are out of time. We've been chatting with Dr. Ralph Hawkins, Ancient Wisdom for the Good Life, and we just scratched the surface, friends. There is so much more to this book. I encourage you to pick up a copy. It would be a good study for a group, in fact. Don't just read it yourself, but invite some friends and sit down and go through this. I think you're going to be blessed when you do. Ralph, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on WCN today. Thank you so much, Dr. Spaulding. It's been my pleasure. Amen. Well, you're welcome.
Friends, that's all we have for you on this week. Please share this on your platforms and, and to your friends and, and uh, in your circle. I think they would benefit from it. We'll see you next time here on WCNT. God bless you. Mm -hmm.